Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the last weekend of August. We're only about three weeks away from the fall equinox and I'm still crossing my fingers to get out and have some more adventures before we get into the dark season. If you're getting out, I'd love to hear what you're seeing. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded with John Chapman. He was one member of a team of several folks who came to Sitka as part of a broader visit to South Southeast Alaska, which included Ketchikan and Juno. They were sampling a native species of mud trip that burrows down into the mud, looking for an introduced species of isopod that is well-established on the west coast further south and had been recently found to occur in Alaska, and they were curious about the extent of that occurrence and the impact it's having here. I will be posting links to further information. If you want to learn more, you can visit my website, sitkanature.org slash raven, and look for show number 244, where I will be posting those links along with the recording. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with John introducing himself and then speaking a bit about the isopod and the mud shrimp. I am John Chapman. I'm an adjunct professor at Oregon State University in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. I'm an invertebrate zoologist, and I study biological invasions and my specialty is marine invertebrates, and the isopod is like your pill bug that eats your um, strawberries or something. Um, but isopods, that group of pill bugs, is very, very diverse. And the most diverse family of those isopods is in the marine system, and they are bopyrid isopods or cyamented isopods. But there's a huge number of them that are parasitic. So 500 species in that one family, something like that. And on this coast, there aren't very many species. There's, I don't know, 20, something like that. They parasitize mostly other crustaceans. But there are some parasitic isopods that, for instance, eat the fish's tongue and become the fish's tongue. And so that's a pretty nasty parasite. But people are appalled at parasites in general, and we don't like to be eaten and things. But the truth is that we're all uh, getting eaten all the time by parasites. And it's just that Homo sapiens are pretty good about escaping from those things. But we get them. And so um, this parasite is um, an isopod that gets into something called the mud shrimp that occurs, that has a range that, at least from Prince William Sound, this particular species of mud shrimp from Prince William Sound to Morro Bay, California, which is just north of Los Angeles and Santa Barbara. Um, and the isopod was introduced in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, this parasitic isopod. And it um, has I was spreading since then, but we didn't really discover it until 2004. And it was an undescribed species from Asia. And so um, things don't happen until you know that they're there. And so this um, taxonomist who lives on the Oregon coast named John Markham described this new species from Yaquina Bay, which is where the Marine Science Center is where I am. And so I was completely shocked and amazed that this very large um, parasite um, was a new species in Yukuna Bay. And I work on invasions, so that put up all sorts of red flags. And so I was very, very suspicious that it was introduced. And it took very little time to correspond. And the idea of an introduced species is, how do you know? The first question, the most common question people ask is, how do you know that it's introduced? 
But someone like me goes in reverse. I sort of lived my life asking, how do you know that it was always there? How do you know that it's a native species? And so that's really all it is, is that we have, we look out the window and we see these things and we don't know if they were always there, if our ancestors, if they were here 10,000 years ago or they arrived two weeks ago. Mostly we don't know that. And so we ask those questions. And in this case, this thing was a shocking uh, um, new thing in Yukuna Bay that almost certainly couldn't be from there. And so when we started corresponding, indeed, um, we found this uh, fellow named Gyo Itani in southern Japan who said, we have it here. And that he, didn't, he misidentified it originally, and that would be easy to do. And then we corresponded, and we all wrote a paper together about this introduction, that how it got here and what we think it happened. And, it's, and um, science doesn't have final answers. We just do things on probability. And so we think that it probably highly likely came in ballast water as larvae. And the ballast water trade really began, became very active between China and Russia in the 1980s. And so it, that may be part of it. But ballast water in ships, which is used to stabilize the ships to, to counterbalance a light cargo or something, um, they, they couldn't float without putting in ballast water and taking it out. That's how things get introduced around the world in marine systems, one of the biggest mechanisms. And it's been in the last 30 years that there's been regulations to try to, to limit and control that. And Alaska has a very active program in watching marine and introduced species, and all of that happened in the last 30 years or so. And so um, Alaska is far north and avoids most of the things that happen in Oregon and Washington and California and in, and in Vancouver and places like that. We have lots and lots of invasions there, and they can't grow oysters in some places because of introduced species. And in Alaska, pretty much every place... Um, it's hard to find an introduced species. Well, this one's here now. And so the mud shrimp, uh, it's easy for Alaskans not to know about that because most Alaskans don't know about mud shrimp. And mud shrimp, there's only one species that we know of and that's in the intertidal where you would dig clams or something, and they burrow down deeper than the clams for the most part. And they get to be five inches. They get as long as your hand, and they weigh almost an ounce. So they're big they're a big uh, crustacean, and they are common. It's just that it's uh, you don't encounter them very often, and so most people are, who are not fishing or it's not flying around like a bird, they don't know that it's there. But they, they are abundant in Alaska, apparently, and very little has been written about them. In um, the lower states, they live in mud flats that are much more accessible and easier to dig. And so it turns out that at Yaquina Bay in Oregon, Newport, Oregon, where it was described as very easy to go find them, and they were very abundant. And so we started studying them about uh, 16 years ago, and now we've been tracking them. And so um, because I work on biological invasions, I kind of thought that this would be a quick description of what this was. But after a very short amount of time, I realized that this introduced parasite um, does way more than any other marine invertebrate that I've ever introduced marine invertebrate that I ever saw. This one is causing the native mud shrimp to go extinct. So there are populations that have been occupied by this parasite 
And once the parasite gets to be above a certain frequency of prevalence in the, in the population, then the populations collapse. And the first one that we know of was in Willapa Bay. And this fellow, Brett Dumbald, who works for the Department of Agriculture now, was doing his, uh, thesis, his PhD thesis work on this. And he started sampling in 1988. And he found some in 1988, two, found another two in 1994 of the Sisabod. Then in 1997, he found another two or three. And then in 98, he found six or seven or eight or nine or 10. And then he found this exponential increase in the frequency until they got up to about 60% in the population. And then the population collapsed. And he went out there and sampled really, really hard. And he got up six more mud shrimp on this one mud flat. And then since 2002, he's never found it again. Hmm. It disappeared, it collapsed. And so when I saw his data, then I knew that this was a big deal. So he was finding these before they had been officially described? It and, was undescribed. Yeah. And, and, and when that happens, people, um, and scientists too, that we see this thing and it's not described and we just decide, oh, it's something, I'll look it up, I'll figure it out later. I, I you know, what is this? I don't know what it is. But they don't, uh, it's, very, it's, it's very natural to not think this is new. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's no end of, as, as, I've, as I've learned from, you know, trying to find all the things that I can find here, there's no end of things that were always here that uh, I never noticed before, you know. So, <laughs> exactly. so that does tend to be my default. But sometimes sometimes they weren't here. And, and that is, as you were saying, and especially in these days with, with shifting of, of climates and, and that sorts of thing, those sorts of things, that there is always that open question, okay, this thing that I haven't seen before, is it is it new here? Is it new here and going to stay? Is it new here and it's just kind of happened to arrive? And, and there's this one, you know, plant, for example, that's growing, but it's not going to reproduce. Or is it or is it always been here and I just haven't been to the right places or haven't happened to notice it? Like, it's it's difficult to answer or that question rare, a lot of times. Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so a default assumption that's really false is we pretty much assume that things are native unless there's somebody comes along and says that it's introduced. We're pretty much the default assumption for almost everyone is, unless you can show me that it's introduced, it was always here. Well, of course, that's ridiculous. If you don't know anything about it, that's what you know. And it, if you know your your assumption should be, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> yeah, I suppose you could make an argument that the numbers are suggest that just based on numbers, it's it's more likely that it was here. However. The important things are like the like these introduced things that are going to then introduce instability and in, in kind of a system. Yeah, pretty much introduced species. You know, uh, from the get go, when we don't know anything, they may not be good. And so, in marine systems, there are very few examples of introduced species causing um, extinction. And I don't know of any actually. Um, and it looks like this is the one. This is one that we're going to be able to watch. It. It's, it, it's hard to watch. So that's probably why we're not seeing it. We expect that it is there. But this one we can watch and we can measure it. And, it, and so we went out on the tide flats today. Um, and uh, Karen Johnson is here. And she's uh, a participant in iNaturalist. And it, it's amazing to me how many Alaskans are involved in that. So I think 10 people here in Sitka are volunteering to help us or helping us in some way. It's like if we went to San Francisco, we'd be lucky to have 10 people that showed mm. to help us, right? And so it, the, the, um, what the participation of the citizens, the involvement in their environment is way greater. Well, here's something 
where there's a mud shrimp that you may you're probably unlikely to have seen them um, because they're kind of hard to observe because they're under this but they're abundant and they're really important and they're part of Alaska. I've found the the shells before, like the uh, molts, the cuticles. Yeah, yeah, the and and they're I notice them especially when they're blue because th- I, th- I think that the shrimps themselves. Shrimp, that's what it's called. Yeah, they aren't always blue. It doesn't seem like, but no, but uh, but it's kind of cool when you find Actually, the when blue they're ones. blue. Yeah. That's bad news for them. Oh, they're is really it sunburned yeah. or something like oh, that? Okay, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. And I've seen them. I've seen them alive a couple of times, but uh, but not often. But I haven't gone searching for them either. Um, and I know Karen has found them, and but yeah, so these are mud shrimp that, that as you, you mentioned, they burrow into the the ground, but uh, and or into the ground, into the into this the sediment, ground. yeah, yeah, underwater ground, I guess. Um, and they're so so they they can be abundant. It sounds like yeah, they are um, in Yukuna Bay where we are. Before this isopod showed up, before um, they were something like. Um, one pound per square meter. Oh, wow. So if you want to translate that, that's, you know, if you had an irrigated cattle pasture, that's something like 51 times as much as that. It's in a, in a I don't know, a six square mile, it's six square miles, I think. It's like having a herd of 50 elephants. Wow. And it's, it's in, they, you know, the, of all the things that were in the estuary, the clams and the salmon and the, everything else that were there. Um, they were twice as much as the next most um, important organism for biomass, right? For just mass. There's something like um, a thousand tons in this tiny little estuary. Hmm. Well, they're like that in other places. We know it there because we've measured them. Uh, but in Alaska, they're in that kinds of numbers, and they are important because their larvae come up in the springtime, not other times of the year. And this is when you know juvenile salmon are coming downstream <clears throat> and are looking for those kinds of things as prey. And this is a prey that's released at the right time. So if you had a, a sporadic prey that coincides with when the juvenile salmon are there, then it's extra abundant. And no one's really looked at that, but I do know that they've been found. They're common, really common in salmon stomachs when people identify everything that's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so it's a, it's an important thing there. And then the other thing is that um, there's a woman in in uh, Ketchikan who's in involved in eye nature, and so they you know they put these post these beautiful pictures on there, and they describe them, and they want them identified. And so uh, when I started to look at that and see what was there, I was kind of amazed to see her holding this shrimp with this isopod that I knew exactly what it was, wondering what it was. And, of course, I could write to her. And it was actually her mom holding it in her hand, and I could identify the isopod. But then we wrote back to Megan, please um, measure your mom's thumb, and then we can figure out how big this isopod is. And then when we figured out how big it was, we could tell probably how old it was. We knew that it had been there a minimum of three years before she found it. And then so that placed the invasion back there in something like 2017 or 2018 is the the latest that it could have got to Ketchikan. And so the reason that we came to Sitka is to see if it's here. Is, it, are, is the invasion spreading further up in Alaska? So we went to Ketchikan last week. We've been sampling there. And today they are still, there's still a bunch of us that are there sampling. And to our horror, the infestation there is something like 80% in the reproductive females. Well, the population I described 
in World of Pabay that collapsed had a prevalence of 60%. So no fishery could sustain an 80% catch. No fishery could. And so this is what's happening. And so with introduced species, um, they don't play by the rules because there's no evolution. So the reason that, I don't know, elk and bears and um, uh, all the other kinds of things that are here, salmon, they there was nothing that will fish them to extinction because then they would become in troubles themselves. And evolution has a nasty way of dealing with predators that eat too much, they starve to death. But if they're introduced, there isn't a problem. And this experiment has been done in Alaska where they introduced foxes to seabird islands and the foxes ate every single seabird and egg and then they all starved to death and they came back and found dead foxes and no seabirds and that's why seabirds live on islands no foxes yeah <laughs> that's why foxes don't live there they eat all the seabirds <laughs> yeah so with these um well i guess i i'm curious the the um life cycle of this this isopod it's it's parasitic on the mud shrimp and it gets in as I understand it the gills and it basically is sucking the blood uh, from that and and it's not outright killing the individual it's hosting is it's no, hosting it a long time it's much worse than killing it so let's see a shrimp people think of the carapace as the head right and so the back end the tail that everybody wants to to eat is the the uh, thorax and so. They they want it's the, t- the and the telson the back end, and so this is the carapace is the part of the head on the shrimp that's like the lobster the side of the lobster that folds over the legs, and then the isopod lives under that and it actually draws blood from the carapace which is very soft on these shrimp, and if you had scaled one up to yourself, this isopod on the shrimp is like you having a mid-sized dog under your armpit sucking your blood, you would know. And so they take, and they don't kill the shrimp, they make it anemic. And so they effectively castrate the females so they can't reproduce. And so, um, and that's worse than if they killed it because the shrimp, once it has the isopod, is no longer a shrimp. It's an isopod. And it's making baby isopods. And it's competing with the other shrimp that don't have the isopods. And so, you know, they're zombies. And so that's what's happening in Ketchikan right now. So we, we, we didn't find any recruit. Um, we measure um, size frequencies of the populations. We know, kind of know their ages. In Alaska, we know a lot less. But we can see that settlement of the larvae of the shrimp is periodic, and it comes in the, in the spring. And that sometime between June and July, the larvae should settle, and they're really small. They're a couple, you know, five millimeters long or something. But we have equipment to catch them. And we worked very, very hard and didn't find a single one. And we had a very big sample size. That's in Ketchikan. And we didn't find any here, and we're not terribly surprised. But when we looked at the whole population structure, it looks like they don't settle every year in Alaska, maybe. And so this is so preliminary, I'm just guessing. But it looks like they don't have good, they have good years and bad years. The shrimp does. But now this isopod seems to be on its way up the coast. And what we're finding is that in, in uh, Ketchikan, we find the whole size distribution of this isopod. They live about three years. And we find lots of little ones. We find lots of mid-sized ones and lots of big ones. And they all look healthy. And almost all the shrimp that we find have this isopod in them, this parasite. 
And here in Ketchikan, we found not so many big shrimp. We found a lot more little shrimp, which is actually a good sign. And there aren't as they're not as frequent in the big shrimp. And we don't have very many big shrimp yet. But um, the sample size in Ketchikan is so big, and, and that it's already obvious that pretty likely that there are, the isopod hasn't established here as densely, mm. and for whatever reason. But it's as if we're at the edge of the invasion, and it's now starting to loom over Sitka. Yeah. So, so the isopod only it it gets on. Can, can it uh, can it find the the shrimp in its burrow, or is it only getting it when it's in its larval stage before it settles? That's or an excellent question. And the problem about um, uh, biology or science is that when you answer one question, it almost never gives you, or <laughs> never satisfied. It always raises even nastier questions. So the isopod has larvae. And this parasite has larvae. It produces larvae. So this is something that was introduced with ballast water from Asia to the west coast of, the United States, of North America. And it lives in estuaries, pretty much. And it, it when it comes... Out of the when the isopod produces a brood of babies and it has a pouch on its tummy that it holds forty to eighty thousand babies at a time and it produces more than one brood per lifetime of isopod. So, you know, each isopod can produce a minimum of eighty thousand babies and you know more like one hundred sixty thousand, a lot of babies. And they um, the when they come out of the the parasite, they are much smaller than the dot of the eye in 12 font, you know, type. They're three tenths of a millimeter. And then they go out in the ocean, they find a copepod that they've never seen before. It's a native copepod and they parasitize this. And then they uh, molt and become a microniskin. And that's when they live on the, as a parasite on this copepod, this small, small crustacean out in the ocean is super abundant. Then they, uh, this is out in the ocean, right? And then they uh, molt in, in transform into something called a cryptoniskin that goes back to get back into the shrimp. And so the cryptoniskin is a whopping point, point 0.7 millimeters long. So if you have a lead pencil, mechanical pencil, and it, you know, you get it the, the normal Bic pencil has a 0.7 lead. So look at the width of that lead, and that's how long this thing is. That's out in the ocean, and it comes back into the estuary by itself. If that doesn't bother you, I have to say it again. But it, this is Graham Stoker and his, you know, Dracula and the sailor holding on the steering wheel of the ship. This is. This is worse than that. This is something that's so small you can't see it, but it's going miles and miles across the ocean to get back into the estuary to find its host that lives in the down underneath the mud, and it does that so much that it's causing them to go extinct. And it was introduced, and all of it was new. It came here. It didn't know anything. It didn't have anything, but it's able to do that. And then it has one more stroke. They don't just go into the shrimp. They come into the estuary, and they wait. They're mm. waiting for something, and they settle in the fall. But they're here. They're very abundant for all summer long, and they can't eat. They don't have any hosts. They don't even have mouth parts. They're just waiting. What are they doing? How do they do that? So that's kind of what we're after, and so we think that the um, climate change is a good example is that the 
biogeochemistry of our ecosystems, the ocean, the mudflats, all of those things. We, we've always known that it has to be important. It has to be terribly important. But we don't know how it works. Well, here's something that's probably keying in on an organism that's feeding on, I don't know, bacteria or something that grow in there that are very important and they only like a particular kind. And only, and, but they're very successful because they do that. But because they do that, it's possible that they're equivalent of farmers and that this parasite is not even looking for the host. It's looking for the farm. Um, and so we're, we're, we're a long ways from getting at that. What we're trying to do now is to look at the, how much is here, what's here, what do they look like. So this time we're coming through to look at the genetics of the shrimp and we found that there are very distinct populations of the shrimp itself if we go up and down, just like salmon. And so that there are populations that live in Alaska and they're Alaskan mud shrimp. And there are populations that live in Washington and those are Washington mud shrimp and California ones and Oregon ones. And so they're really very different. And so this thing, this parasite is coming here and getting them all. And so it go, its range now is Sitka to somewhere around Punta Banda in northern um, Baja California. Mm. And I don't know of another invertebrate, native invertebrate, that has that range. So, so is it's finding something, or is there another mud shrimp that yeah. it gets? It in gets south another of the, species that we don't even know about those species down there. Yeah. We don't, we're not even asking any questions. Right. Is they're just on their own. Yeah. We're not there. And we know they're there. That's about it. Right. And, so, so there's some sort of something is, is, Allowing these uh, the parasites to they they parasitize the copepod and then at a certain point of development they I don't know if I mean at that small it would seem like they they they're still would be planktonic uh, they are and, these things are tiny 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 yeah. and they are released from the bottom of the estuary right in the bottom of a hole or something that's you know th- um, three feet down in the mud flat. They come out of there, and they're not as big as the dot on a 12-font letter I. They, we know from the lab, when we get them in a Petri dish, if we shine a light on them, they'll swim back and forth. Mm-hmm. And they swim back and forth so you don't have to be bored while you wait. They yeah. swim back and forth really quickly. And so they very likely swim to the surface from there, and then they're carried out of the estuary. So that's pretty easy. They get out. But then they were never here. They, they were introduced here. They right. How do they know where they're going after that? So, okay, you get out of the estuary by doing this in Japan or China or Russia or some Korea. or Okay, that's fine. Now get back home. And in there, it's a downwelling system, and here it's an upwelling system. Yeah. And it's all different hosts that you're going to be on out in the ocean. It's like, are you, I would have never, ever guessed that this could happen. I would have, in fact, I would have said, I'm confident that I would have said, no, this thing can't be introduced. You, it can't, has too many problems to solve. It's impossible to solve this problem. And yet, here, here except, we are. Yeah. Except for one thing. Yeah, yeah I, w- I would be wrong. Right. And so, very wrong. So, so has there been any, I mean, you mentioned you, you worked with somebody in Japan who, who is aware of these. Um, is there any been any work done on the life history of them in their native range and oh, and like well, that's kind of an interesting question too because they're so obscure and they're so hard to study that they're they look so different when they come out of the brood pouch of the parasite when it's released from the host they're so fantastically different from the final individual that's the bopyridin that lives as a parasite on the host so you don't look like your mom 
at all. And so then how do you, when you find them in the water column and they know that they were there, um, who did that belong to? And when they molt into something else that doesn't look at all like the first stage, the epicarid that comes out, they don't resemble them at all. And so how do you know who's who? Until genetics came along, now we're that, and actually somebody here, um, one of, uh, I'm working here, I'm here with Jing Chun Li, who's at the University of Colorado Boulder. And she and her graduate students, and then myself and my graduate students, were all attacking this problem. And so I'm working on the population biology of that. How do they grow? How long do they live? How, how fast are they dying? How much does the isopod take from them? What's the cost of this parasite to the host? And Jing Jun and her students, they're working on the genetics to try to figure out what's the diversity of these things and the isopod. Is this isopod just one introduction or is it a lot of them? Is, and how many kinds of shrimp are there are we really looking at? And so we're, by doing the genetics, she has an idea of the diversity of those things. And so um, when we, in Alaska, um, we go to the rocky shore and we see these things and there are guides to the invertebrates and the organisms that are there. And they, things that look alike, we assume are the same thing, which is what else could we do? Um, and they are, they act the same, and it's very useful to even have that category. But it turns out that we know, for instance, that salmon in some streams are vastly different. Even populations, different populations in some streams are vastly different depending on the reach that they're from in the tributaries to those streams. So, of course, it's like that for all the rest of this place. And so these organisms are like that. And so Jing Jun and her students, quick and dirty, can say, well, there are a lot of different genotypes here, or it's all the same thing. Um, that's, I'm guessing it's not going to be all the same thing. I think they're going to be very diverse, just like you would think with salmon or anything else. And so, so first cut here is to see if the, the parasite is here. It's here. Bad. <laughs> Second cut is, well, what's at stake? How big is the china shop that it's in? And so we're looking at all the different things that are here that it can hit. And so we're trying to get an idea of the diversity of the shrimp, the mud shrimp mm-hmm. here in Alaska. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's interesting too. It sounds like if um, you you've made some some best guesses essentially at when it arrived based on patterns of of use of this this uh, ballast water and, and so forth, and then and then maybe I mean, you know, obviously you knew from the person who didn't have a name for them but had had collected them in Willapa Bay. Um, that they were there then. Like, so, so is that kind of the, the detective work of figuring out when they arrived and oh, yeah. and how fast they're spreading is, is kind of based on yep. people and, saying, oh, this is weird, but I'll, I'll figure it out later and then kind of <laughs> now talk I to, to people well, up I'm and the up person the coast. That, yeah. What the geek that doesn't say this is weird, I'll figure it out later. Yeah. This is the geek goes, wow, what's this? And so jumps on it. And that's what happened. And I thought it was going to be a quick problem 16 years ago. Yeah. But no, so one of the things that we do to find out was it always here, is ask that question in reverse. And so museums collected these specimens 100 years ago. It's, this thing was described in 1852. And so people knew what a mud shrimp was in 1852. And, so, and they're in museums in all over the world, in Russia and Harvard and Great Britain. And so we have specimens that were collected over time. And the two collections that I looked at very a lot 
were the Los Angeles County Museum and the uh, San Francisco Academy of Sciences. And they have a um, whole series of collections of these things. There are published records of them and when they were there. But I was able to look at them and you could and look for the isopod, and it wasn't there. And then the other thing is that people write books and papers and take pictures of this thing. And it's a very iconic organism, not, maybe not so much in Alaska because really you only have – you don't even have a million folks here, right? But there aren't so many naturalists here. They just can't be. And so there's so many more there, and they take pictures and incidental things and post it on the web. And there's all these kinds of resources uh, that you could look for to see if it was there. And the other thing is that if you're somebody like me, you have to do statistics. And so the statistically, the, the chances that it was there before the early 1980s are uh, just about zero. They, they never detected it. There were people that were doing all kinds of work on the mud shrimp. And I talked to some of them that were, you know, in, even in Yaquina Bay that saw thousands of the shrimp and never saw this isopod. And there were people that would have noticed that. And, you know, when I asked them about it, they found other kinds of things. They made other kinds of observations, very obscure things. But they never saw that. And here's something like a little puppy dog, a mid-sized dog under your armpit. You would know. Yeah. So, yeah. And the, so, so as you're working on this and I mean, at, yeah, as you said, it's extinct in at least one bay, maybe, maybe multiple bays at this point where oh, yeah. you've been studying. No, we're pretty sure. Well, let's see in San Francisco Bay, it's a pretty big place to sample everywhere, but I've declared twice now in two different papers that it's extinct there. And that's an assertion. Come and get me folks. Show me that it's there. Um, I can't find it. And yeah. so I'm concluding that it's not there. And that it's being replaced by another mud shrimp that's introduced by from Asia that is the native host of this parasite, which is even worse news because that means that this parasite, if it kills our native shrimp, can be replaced by this other shrimp that – back to my story. You don't like introductions and here it comes. And it lives as far north – both of them live as far north as Vladivostok. So that places us in a climate that would be – I mean that's no problem here. Um, and so that means that the – and so in San Francisco Bay and in all the places where the native mud shrimp has collapsed the most, that's where we're finding this new shrimp. Mm. So it's as if it's displacing or replacing. Yeah. And so we're not sure – and then we don't know what it is, but um, it carries a um, – in Asia – it has a, a virus has been detected in it, a Vibrio, uh, that um, causes 60% mortality in humans. Hmm. So it's like, you know, that would have to be checked out. Maybe it didn't come here. Maybe it has, maybe it's something, maybe it just amplifies that in Asia or something. But it's not good news. Yeah. So, the, uh, the the Asian mud shrimp then presumably has something about its life history allows it to have a well. I mean, I know that there are, are these rhizocephalan barnacles, for example, that get into crabs, and and they're here, and they're not that unusual to find. On the one hand, they're basically zombify the crabs, take them over, um, but the crabs are also doing all right. So, like, there's some sort of balance, you know. Right. Well, it's they're co-evolved, right? So mm-hmm. if they had killed too many crabs, they wouldn't be here. Right, evolution would have taken care of them. But we didn't have evolution when you just introduce something. You didn't have that, right? And so this thing can can eat them all. 
and so it's really pot and then it'll go extinct and maybe but Except now for it that has this native yeah, the native host, host coming in here so yeah. it won't go extinct and so it can eat them all and still have its cake yeah so and i guess in some ways pave the way for for this niche to be you know well, it's kind of like a ratchet. When you change one thing, then you change another thing, then you change another thing, and so it keeps changing. And the things that are evolved here are at a disadvantage, so they're losing each time. The things that are introduced here, their relative odds are going up each time. And so now we're, the climate change effects are starting to be very severe, and so this is why I think that these invasions are starting to happen. One of the first questions that I, to me was ballast water was going for 100 years before 1983 or so. So it was, there was active ballast, you know, they, solid ballast. They used to carry rocks and bricks and masonry and things like that in sailing ships. And then when they started having steel ships, they pumped in water. And so they're much cheaper and easier to do. And then they transported that all over the world. And then they even said that they weren't allowed to use uh, fuel tanks for ballast. And so they didn't pollute the ballast water. So it's clean water. It's good water. And it carried all kinds of things. And so we had these exponential increases in introductions so that the Mediterranean, Mediterranean, I don't know, 20 years ago was getting one new introduction every five days. And San Francisco Bay 20 years ago or more was getting one new introduction every six weeks. So mm-hmm. um, you can't win a game like that. And s- yeah, I suppose that's the irony of cleaning up the water was that a lot more stuff could survive in it. Uh, yep, and so that was a good thing, but then there's this other stuff. And so they're putting more and more regulations, but the point is that ballast water was there for 100 years, and so this thing was introduced here many, many times before the 1980s when it finally showed up. Why did it show up in the 1980s? Why didn't it come 100 years before that? And I think that our problems with the spread of invasions and, and how much they are and, the, and how serious of a problem they are is that we're only trying to stop them, which is excellent. We should be doing that. We should not back down on that. But the reason they're coming, you know, we're making it easy for them to come. And so we don't want, we're trying not to do that. So our ecosystem is being attacked. And so we have to have rice and corn. We want to harvest salmon. We want to have, you know, we want all those things. And to have them, you know, we have to understand how the rest of the world works. Right. Well, and so with these these mud shrimp, um, for folks that live in, well, you know, presumably if somebody hears this and, and lives someplace other than Sitka and Ketchikan, <coughs> which are the two places it sounds like you've done some work, maybe you're going to do some work well, elsewhere. Well, one of the reasons that I'm really glad to be here is that the eyes of the public are so fantastically more powerful than I can do or us, our group can do by coming to Alaska for a few days that people here in Alaska looking for it are fantastically more capable of finding this thing than we'll ever be. So if they know about it and they go to iNature or they, I don't know, contact me or write to any of the people in our group or read the papers or go online and type John Chapman, mud shrimp, John Chapman, parasite, you know, they'll find what I'm doing very quickly and then they can see this thing and they can write to me and they can find my email address and all those kinds of things. And so they just kind of have to look and be curious. And and I'll say this is that the Alaskans per capita have been fantastically proactive, that a huge amount of information came to me because of these people that just go out and take pictures and are curious and 
So iNaturalist is a good place to post post the, oh, yeah. the stuff. And um, that, so so for folks that aren't familiar, I guess if I was going to describe a mud shrimp, it's vaguely like a, a you know something a vaguely crayfish in its sort of. Yep, I've as heard opposed that comparison to, many times. Yeah, crayfish or to, lobster or something. Yeah, as opposed to the sort of shrimp that we usually eat uh, in terms of its body form. Yes, it has a, a very big head. So and um, the claws has large claws, and if you get them, they're very active. They will pinch you. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> they'll try. The, the one that I probably saw was was a little mellower than that, but uh, um, but yeah, it's, I think my daughter found it under a rock, um, and I don't think it was buried as deep for so it may not have been very happy. It may not have been where it was wanting to be for whatever reason, but. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that they're so deep. So if, if folks are out and, and happen to, to come across them, then look for this uh, strange-looking bump, basically, on the side of its head. Yeah, but uh, the th- the other thing is to identify mud shrimp. It looks like a, I don't know, a, a crayfish or something that has a butch haircut. Mm, okay. So there's sort of greenish normally or brownish normally. And there's another kind of shrimp that's common that we haven't found a few of called ghost shrimp. And there are at least two species here, and they tend to be pink. Okay. And so they also have a big head, but not as big as the mud shrimp. And they live in sandier kinds of places, but they live in the same places as the mud shrimp too. And they have a parasite also that's very rare. So the para- it's a native parasite and doesn't get them. And not you know it's not controlling their populations like this. It's the mud shrimp that's there. But the mud shrimp, um, in our little exploration here, is actually it's very common. It's just very hard to get at. It's hard to get them. So they're just down there really deep. We were digging excavations. I don't know that were um, eight feet or you know wide and are long and five feet wide and, I don't know, three feet down to try to get them. Mm. And it's just a huge amount of work. And so, well, if you're out there clamming, you don't want to do that. You want to get your clams and go home. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this was an um, – so so the day you're here is kind of the, the new moon tide series in August. Uh, it's, it's only like a minus 1.5, I think. So it's not even an especially low tide. Uh, our, yeah. our lower tides here are like yeah, a minus three. High, they actually live higher up in, in the intertidal. They're, okay. they're, they're, but we don't know about Alaska, right? right. And where we are from, from Washington, Oregon, and California, they're pretty much not subtidal. They're pretty okay. much only intertidal. So um, you know, it's rare to find a subtidal one. And they're extremely rare to find them offshore. Hmm. So they, you know, they're they really live close to the shore, and they're bound to that. And that's the curious thing is we don't even know why they're making these elaborate tubes. What are they for? Oh, so what it's not do? just a straight. It's like there's some. They make a Y-shaped tube. We know that by pouring resin down there. Pretty mm-hmm. nasty thing to do. And they make a Y-shaped tube with a big handle on it. And so the, they can be up to six feet down. Wow. That's a lot of digging. I mean, what are they eating? Well, um, we're trying to find out. So we've done a lot of work about on them. To to do that, we've you, some of the things you can do is stabilize the topes. You can look at fatty acids. You can um, look at do genomics of the bacteria, and we know that they're eating bacteria. But we and we obviously open up the stomachs and look inside. And so the stomachs that we dissect are full of sediments, but we know they're not eating sand. Uh, so they're eating something that's closely associated with the sediments. And then when we do the genomics, that it, some of it looks like 
um, stuff that's in the water column, but it's that's it's hard to separate that out. But they're they're eating very fine things. They don't they're not predators. They're not eating I don't know algae or plants or something like that. And so I suspect with no data, yet, yeah, yeah, no data, but I suspect that they're farmers that they're farming these elaborate burrows that they're making and they're growing things on them. Mm. And their the their intestines and their digestive system is a very, very elaborate, complicated thing. And so it's like they're cows or sheep or something and like ruminants and that they're processing this food after they get it. So and they have a huge gland in their tail that they use to to extrude polysaccharides and glue the sides of their tube together. And so the sides of their tubes are really smooth and meticulously maintained like a farm. Hmm. And so that may be, and again, with no data, why do these cryptoniscans wait? Why are they waiting? What are they waiting for? And why are they so incredibly good at finding this host? And so when the host is super rare, they're almost always infested hmm. that it, they, it doesn't matter how rare the mud shrimp is on a mud flat that isopod can find them. So how is it that? So good? there's some signal that it's yep. keen in. And on. worse than that is if we take the cryptoniscan, which we can catch, and they're really easy to get. This paras when it, this, the form that's getting into the host, the the larval form that settles into the host, we can catch them. And if we put them, just catch one and get a mud shrimp and stick that under the carapace where it has to go or it's going to die, they don't settle. They won't do that. Hmm. And not only that is that they can live for at least 60 days with no food. So they can go in the estuary. They, they can afford to wait. They are waiting for something. And we don't know what it is. Hmm. Yeah, it, it seems like lots of mysteries, <laughs> yeah. which I suppose is, is part of what makes it, generally speaking, you know, natural history and, and biology uh, interesting. It's like Addictive, I think. Yeah. It's kind of not healthy. <laughs> So. <laughs> no end of no end of the mysteries. <laughs> so yeah, and and you know modern tools to investigate some of these things. So so the mud shrimp. So there's a lot that's not known essentially about their their natural history, their their sort of life ways. Yeah, at first we thought there was, and then when we started really working on it, realized well that's no good. That's not true. This isn't true. It doesn't work like that. That's a good observation. Their observation is correct, but it's not what they think it means. Mm. And on and on and on. So it's really we're we had to learn about the we. We knew we were interested in the isopod itself. We're trying to understand it. But we realized that the natural history and ecology of the shrimp was so poorly resolved, so little was known about it, that we couldn't even make an advance with the isopod until we knew a little more about the shrimp. And so we spent it maybe 10 years just working on the shrimp, really not doing much at all with the isopod. And it's only in the last five years that we really started to really, really look at this isopod and try to understand what it's doing. Because we knew we couldn't do it, it was un- untouchable. Yeah. And- well, in the in the shrimp, is that I mean, like sometimes it's helpful to to be able to actually watch them. Are are you able to sort of raise them in captivity and and kind of observe them that way? Um, the short answer is no. Yeah. Um, the reason for that, and this is another one of those things that does not make sense, is that the isopod only infests reproductive size shrimp. So mm. that they, the little shrimp, they don't go in there. And we're pretty sure that's an energetic constraint. If, you, if the isopod uh, parasitizes a too small shrimp, it will not grow to reproductive size. It, it's not able to. There's not enough food in the, the new host to get it to a reproductive size. So, okay, and that, I think, even though we don't have the – we haven't done the final experiments. You could do more to answer that question. But I think that our 
our data are pretty good on that. But this one is terrible. The shrimp, it, when it settles out of the water column, the shrimp has the larval stages that go out in the ocean and comes back into the estuary. And that's kind of amazing, too, that it finds its own way back. That, so that's really cool and interesting. And we know only a tiny amount about that. But we know they do it. And they look, when they settle, and they're only a couple of millimeters, they're like five millimeters long. They're a quarter of an inch. And they're tiny. You, you know, we would not... It'd be hard to see one on a mudflat when they first come out of the water column and settle down. They look like these beautiful um, pieces of glass that look just like the big shrimp, but they're you know you can they're trans they're transparent. You can see right through them. They're just this adorably cute little things with beady black eyes that settle on the mudflat. Okay, that's really nice, and they burrow right in. And if you get a bunch of those, you could put them in a bucket of mud, and they'll burrow right in. And you can put them in sand, and they'll burrow into that. And you can take them in the lab, and they'll burrow into that, and so on and so forth. But when they get to be, when their carapace length, we measure their lengths by their carapace length. And when their carapace gets to about 20 millimeters, they become reproductive. And that's uh, at year two or three. They're not reproductive until they're at least two years old. And so when they get to that age, though, they've been in their burrow, that they make their one burrow in their entire life, that they never leave um, for two years. And if you dig those shrimp out and try to get them to reburrow, they won't. Mm. And there's, they're, they they're anatomically look exactly the same. And maddeningly, you know, it drives, it drives us crazy that if we walk across the mudflat and crush the tops of their burrows or dig a hole next to them and stuff and they're still in their burrows, they can repair their burrows in a few days. Hmm. So why won't they reburrow? What's, why can't you just dig a hole? And we've tried all kinds of things of making artificial holes and sticking them in there and you know poking holes in the things and burying ropes in the mudflat and then pulling rope out and then putting the shrimp down in the hole that the rope made in the mudflat and putting things that look like the shapes there and all that. None of that works. Hmm. And so um, we've had to study them by catching and killing. Yeah. And so because we can't make them, it would be so simple if we if they would just reburrow. If we could just get them, and you know, it's you're like if you want to grow them in the lab, and you can, but you're four years out, and you can only get about I don't know five percent of them to reproduction. So it's fantastically expensive mm-hmm. for yeah. time and money. Right. Yeah. It's. Uh fascinating the the lives of these these creatures that are you know they're just such a different life than 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 we have so so sort of foreign like we can kind of see it but but what it is that they're doing there i mean like the i didn't know that their tubes were tended so well uh and but but also so if if one comes out of its tube or is dug up for some reason then that pretty much means it's 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 gone it's done it's gone yeah yeah and um the little ones will reburrow. Oh, okay, so yeah. but it's the reproductive age. But if you ones. get a great big one and you dig it up, yeah. it's it's dead. So the so I mean it makes me wonder. I guess uh, you know you're mentioning these these parasites are waiting for something. Like there's some signal that's happening. They won't. You can manually place them into the the shrimp, but they won't take. That's right. So there's some some timing mechanism where either the shrimp is vulnerable or, or something that's signaling to this parasite that this is the this is your moment and and then they Why go don't in. you just go in wait in a bad shrimp and then yeah. when the time comes go i mean this is crazy yeah it doesn't you know it's maddening <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah it's it's it seems very mysterious and so i guess it's still an open question although although it sounds like the 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 based on what you've seen so far that that it seems like the answer will be these these 
these parasitic isopods will continue to expand north. Like there's no reason based on what you've seen so far to expect them to slow down, especially or, or to not to not be able to to essentially colonize the new the new uh, areas where these these mudshrimp are living yeah, all the I way up. Kind of the horror of finding them in Sitka means that they could go anywhere. Yeah. And so that that not only in having the abundance that they have in Ketchikan more than any place else, that they may be harder hit in Alaska than in other places. Maybe worse here than any place that we've ever seen. So, you know, it's like this you know, this is the thing is unfolding here and this is the real disaster. But the other side of that is Probably it, you know, it would be. It's convenient. It's easy. It's a simple conclusion that we can't do anything about it. But if you think that, of course, you're correct. Um, but if we could do something about it, if we did discover something to do about it to interfere, this would be an enormous amount of power. It would apply to all kinds of other things. It would not. I mean, it'd be a great leap. It's worth it just to try to do that. Yeah. Well, and I guess I guess there's there's the the slight chance that there will be a population if there is this diversity there will be a population that has some resistance to them of the, of the shrimp. Well, that's, that's the other that's reason the, we came here to hoping that there was such a thing. Fingers crossed, you know that that and and that that would allow them to. Uh, but of course, if these, this other mud shrimp is is coming in and taking over the niche, then that that uh, puts another wrinkle into the whole whole thing. When but, we when I first came to Alaska to look for this, we didn't find it. And so it seemed to me that it was really possible that this range, this was, it was that the populations up here were out of the range of the parasite. And that what you were saying is maybe there was a refuge. Mm-hmm. While Jing Jun and crew are showing that genetically these populations probably are really different than the ones that are down there. So it's not quite the same as a refuge because it's a different thing that the ones down there that are genetically different we already know that they don't have a refuge and they're not not going to be replaced by the alaskan shrimp but the other side of it is that when we now that we see that it's here there is no refuge yeah and so they and the isopod is unbelievably fantastically unimaginably good at finding this host yeah yeah, it's 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 fascinating, and and you know just the whole, the I I find myself stuck a little bit on, and and I've heard this before about some other crustaceans essentially that these crustaceans which have this very different planktonic form they they go out there and they drift around in the ocean still have remarkable amounts of population structure based on location, and you're like. How does that work? Because we used like, to think that that didn't happen, right? right. We they go out in the ocean and they mix, and and how is it that the ones from this bay are coming back to this bay? Like, to the same rock, maybe. Yeah, you no, know? it doesn't doesn't. Yeah, there's something going on there. Clearly, that that uh, that I don't understand, and it seems like maybe nobody else does either at this point. But, but it's uh, amazing. It's, yeah, we want to know about that. Nerds yeah. like that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Well, um, yeah, as we kind of have talked through our, our time here, anything else that you want to mention? I, so folks can uh, post on iNaturalist if they're finding uh, these mud shrimp, and and certainly post the pictures and and a, probably a nice dorsal shot and a, and a side shot of each side. I suppose would be helpful. 
Well, um, I, I, I guess I would like to thank some of the people that have helped us here. So Marnie Chapman in is um, at the University of Alaska Southeast, and she's you know helped us with lab space. And Karen Johnson found the first um, Ortheone here in Sitka, and you know has has been very instrumental in iNaturalist going forward. And she's an active, you know, a, quite a good naturalist. And Paul Norwood, who is an, an an ER nurse at the hospital, he's a naturalist. He came out and he was helping us dig. It's like wow, all these people came out here. Jessica Perkins is coming out on the mud flat with us tomorrow, and the. The, um, in the Sitka National Historical Park, you know, and, and allowed us to go there and to sample and made an agreement with the museum that they'll, the specimens we collect, that they'll be on, you know, on, under the museum's custody, but they're going to belong to the park, which is fine with us. And so that, you know, the, the cooperation there is like um, the uh, Megan Doran in uh, Ketchikan was the first one to do this and, you know, to write back and to reply to this. And, and um, uh, Tammy Davis, the Alaskan, um, Invasive Species Coordinator is coming to, you know, go, trying to get a hold of us and come out and see us and talk to us about this. And so it's, um, you know, the um, per capita, right, for the, the, the enthusiasm, the, um, you know, we're, we're really amazed at that. It's, it's really amazing to come here and have all these people show up and talk to us and, and give us all this information that we couldn't possibly have any of, and help that we, you know, we couldn't do without. Yeah, it's uh, it's a nice folks. Folks here, in my experience, seem to be pretty pretty interested in what's going on, and and like good news or bad, you know, keeping keeping staying aware of it and trying to to do what they can to to help and and uh, help folks like yourself who are coming in and and trying to do studies and understand things, understand things better. So. Uh, yeah, just encourage if anybody's listening and, and has an interest in this, you can uh, look you up. You, you said just John Chapman and, and parasites or yep. mud shrimp. C-H-A-P-M-A-N. If you do that, I don't know. You can. It's pretty easy. Oregon yeah. State University, John Chapman. And, you know, Chapman, Oregon State University, parasite, isopod, mud shrimp, any of those words, and you'll have hits, and then you can find the rest of it. It's, yeah. it's not I'm, – I'm actually pretty easy to find. All right. Well, and I, if folks are able to, to check out my website when I post the show there, I will post some links to, to some of the yeah, places so, that are helpful. So, and you know, it's like we want to know all the records of where they find it. So if you found it somewhere and can send a photograph, then we can put a dot on the map and know where it is. It's very, very helpful to watch. We think this invasion now – we think we don't know. It looks like right now Sitka's the edge of the envelope, mm-hmm. and that we would like to see no. And that's never been watched, right? So this, if people would just take a photograph and send it in, we could watch this thing. See, yeah, see when it's establishing in places, and then and then and then I guess that allows you to come in and and you know specifically and make target. sense out of yeah. what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate your time here. I know you just have a short trip to town and and glad you're able to come talk with me and share a little bit about what you're doing. Thank you for having me here. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded earlier this August with John Chapman, a marine biologist who specializes in invasive biology and marine invertebrates. I want to thank him for taking some time out of his trip here to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW, Sitka.